If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 today. We have been going through Matthew's gospel and uh, we have uh, finished up with Matthew chapter 8 for now. But for these next three weeks, as we prepare our hearts of worship uh, as Resurrection Sunday is just around the corner. Resurrection Sunday is the first Sunday of April, April 4th. And so for these next three weeks, I feel it appropriate for us to begin to prepare for that moment of celebration uh, by focusing on the last days of our Lord and, and those events that led up to His crucifixion and His resurrection. Amen? Amen. So today I'd like for us, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 26. And this morning as we begin to consider the final price that our Lord paid for our sin, He paid for our sin on the cross. In three short weeks, we're going to worship together and we're going to remember the crucifixion and we're going to remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, what I would hope for us to do is to, to just focus our minds and allow the Lord to speak into our, our hearts through His Word. And today's exposition of the gospel, we're going to be focused on the 26th chapter. This is the beginning of the final days of our Lord as the enemies of the gospel actually prepare for Christ's arrest and prepare to crucify Him. This was, there, was, there was a process of God's providence, His direct hand leading all events of Jesus' final days. And this today is, as we look at chapter 26, this is the beginning of those final days. And I think we're going to see much here of God's hand at work. We're going to see how two different people, two different approaches to Christ value Him in two different ways. And so take a look, if you will. If, if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you have always the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we praise you. And as we meditate on the final days of our Savior's life, we see as he proclaims the gospel, as he even prophesies and reminds his disciples and even reminds us that his death and his resurrection must occur Lord, we can respond to that in two ways. 
We can worship and adore his life and actually worship and adore him for his sacrifice. Or we can look at these events as ho-hum and actually things to avoid. And so, God, I pray this morning you would pour into our hearts your presence, that you would teach us the truth of what salvation is and the value of that salvation, what it cost for us. Lord, cause us to love your Son and value him above all things. And so this time is for you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Please have a seat. To give a timeline here for Matthew 26, let's remember that it was in Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus actually enters into Jerusalem. Uh, Palm Sunday, which is not today. It's, it's a couple of weeks away. But it's, it's the timeline in, in the gospel narrative uh, that Matthew brings us through. Back in chapter 21, he shows that Jesus enters into Jerusalem triumphantly. And we all remember that story as he comes into Jerusalem. There are those who ran out of the city to meet him as he comes. And they're singing, Hosanna in the highest. And they're welcoming in their king. As we come to Matthew chapter 26, Jesus has been in the holy city for a couple of days here. And he's been teaching in the temple. He's been engaging with religious leaders in debate. He's been uh, teaching and, and sharing comfort to uh, his followers, his disciples, all throughout that week. And now it's Wednesday. So when we come to Matthew chapter 26, if you're thinking about the timeline of Jesus' final week, by this point, it's around the middle part of the week. Around Wednesday is where we are. In chapter 26, verse 1, Jesus mentions where he's at, it says that he's just finished a great teaching. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, so what does this mean in verse 26, or chapter 26, verse 1? When Jesus had finished all these sayings, what has occurred here is that chapters 24 and 25 were these, this long teaching of the final days. It was, it was, in other words, this, this teaching of eschatology. That's the word of the day, it seems like, of the final days of Jesus' life and what must come in the final judgment. And so chapters 24 and 25, this long teaching called the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and he's teaching his disciples and he's preparing for his arrest and preparing for his judge or his trial and his crucifixion. He, he spends his final hours teaching, teaching about what must come. But now even in the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus is preparing his disciples, he mentions often, not just then, but throughout much of his ministry, several times he prepares his disciples for what has to happen. I will not be with you forever. Here is what must occur. I, the Son of Man, must die. Now, why is he doing this? Look here at verse 2. He says here in verse 2, when he's responding to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's reminding them one more time of what has to occur. He's predicting to his disciples his death. He's predicting what will come in the next couple of days, his atoning sacrifice. But he's also preparing them to say, this is necessary. He's preparing the hearts of his disciples that his destiny is determined 
for an end to die, to suffer for the punishment that is rightly due us. His death is not a surprise. His death is predicted. Even in the Old Testament prophets, they were letting everyone know that when the Messiah comes, that the Messiah will pay the price for our sins. He will be the perfect lamb, the sacrificial lamb that must be sacrificed in order for our sins to be forgiven. And Jesus is reminding his disciples here in, in verse 2 of chapter 26 that this will come. But what we see here in verse 2 is a more specific timeline. In two more days will be the Passover. And so in two more days, here's what's coming. Now, why is he doing this? He, he, he's prophesying to his disciples for their sake. Because if you've been walk, walking with Jesus for three years... If you have been by his side watching the miracles, watching the gathering of the mass crowds who follow him wherever he goes, if you have been witnessing the miracles and the signs and the wonders, you are on cloud nine thinking, we have made it. We have aligned with the king. Can you imagine that? And now Jesus is saying, here's what's getting ready to happen. When it happens, please don't be surprised. He's telling them out of compassion in two more days, this is what's going to happen. He's preparing them for their heartbreak. He, it's, it's an act of pa- compassion, really, as a buffer against the discouragement and the fear that his disciples will clearly undergo. When you think about your loved ones, if you've ever been with someone on their deathbed, and they are coherent, and, and they want to love on you and spend as much time as they can with you in their final hours and their final days, they will generally want to comfort you because you're worried about their passing. Have you ever been experienced that? It's, 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 it's an amazing thing to watch somebody who is in Christ, who is a Christian, who is in their final days, and they know that their time is limited, and they want to pour out into their family and their friends, their loved ones. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. And Jesus is pouring into his disciples here. He's preparing them for their discouragement and their fear to give them compassion. This is necessary, is what he's saying. What's about to occur is necessary. So Jesus is making it clear that this death of his is not only necessary, Jesus is going willingly and obediently to this end. He's not being coerced. He's not being drugged by forces outside of his control. He is telling them here in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's going willingly, and he's loving on his disciples, and he's saying, don't worry. (laughs) This is what's coming. Prepare your hearts. Know that I am okay with this. Know that it's what the Father says must happen. Now, as Jesus prepares to suffer and to die, As he does this to overcome the power of death for us. There are two types of people who react to this. And that's what I want us to take a look at today. Two types of people who express very different senses of of, of value for Jesus and this sacrifice that he's about to undertake. There's two different reactions to this. Let's take a look at this. Look here at verses uh, 3 through 5 of Matthew 26. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So as, as Matthew is relaying to us this encounter, this, this scene, as Jesus finishes the Olivet Discourse, I would say that, that several Pharisees and perhaps other people were there around him on the mountain as he's sitting there talking and teaching and preparing, and they go run and tell on Jesus. And here gathers the chief priests and all of the elders, the religious leaders. They're going to begin to gather in secret. So this is one response here. A secret assembly is in response to Jesus prophesying his final days. These verses show us, I think, how evil operates. Anything that happens in secret is not good. Amen? The truth of the gospel is not held in secret. And what we see in contrast here is that evil is now beginning to operate. The chief leaders of the Mosaic law, they respond to this through the growing crowds that Jesus is bringing. He's, they're responding to his popularity. They're responding to the fact that Jesus' message was attractive and calling a lot of people around him. And that threatened them. So we have the Sanhedrin gathering here, but the elders that are mentioned, these are lay, these are lay leaders of the, of the community. They are the aristocracy who are gathering with, with all of the religious leaders in Caiaphas's house in secret. How do we deal with this Jesus? That's one reaction here. But we have to think about this, that truth, the truth, the truth that Jesus actually embodies is more attractive than the illusion of truth that these religious leaders are trying to portray. Let's ponder this because what is the reaction of these religious leaders? It was because Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, had had been so attractive that multitudes of gathering of crowds were always around him. He was very popular. And these religious leaders were threatened. And so the, the purest truth, God's truth, that Jesus Christ embodies is always more attractive than the illusion of truth. And these religious leaders, they were actually practicing, they were, they were actually, not, they were lying to themselves. They were deceiving themselves that they had the truth on their side. But in, react, in reality, they were practicing the illusion of truth that the demonic does. Anything that is a twisted and distorted truth is that which is practiced by the demonic, if you think about it. And so these, these leaders were actually being manipulated and, and following an illusion. But let's think about this. We, we can judge these religious leaders all day long, but how many of us often fall prey to the illusion rather than following the clear truth? How many of us are guilty of that? Amen? And so what we see here is that one reaction to Jesus is that he is an enemy. That's how, that's one way that, that some will react to the gospel. They'll react to the gospel of Jesus Christ as, well, he's an enemy. He's opposed to me. I will be opposed to him because he's coming after what I feel is comfortable. 
And that's what these religious leaders are doing. You see, evil values Jesus Christ as an enemy. They see him as an enemy. Jesus is the enemy of those who actually deceive. Jesus is the enemy of deceit. He's the enemy of lies. He's the enemy of, of, of that which is in the dark and, and hidden. So therefore, the gathering in secret by these leaders, they were leaders of a religious system that had grown corrupt. And this secret assembly was the means of stopping the truth. So that's one way to react to how Jesus is teaching here. But the way we can understand a little bit deeper about this secret meeting, if you flip over to John's gospel, John's gospel gives us a little bit more detail about this secret meeting. Matthew just tells us a secret meeting happened. And John's gospel gives us a little bit more detail of the conversation. So if you flip over to John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. See, there's there's always a snitch in the crowd. Amen. Did y'all have one of those in your classrooms when you were growing up as kids? There was always the snitch. There we go. And nothing ever good comes out of tattletaling. Just if there's any kids in the room, any tattletaling, nothing good ever comes out of tattletaling. Just letting you know. Okay. Amen. Y'all awake this morning? That was a funny joke, I thought. I don't it's all right. At home, I just get the eye roll, okay? Um, where were we? Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So they're reacting against Jesus and his miracles and, and, the, and the allure that people were drawn to because they saw the Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there's the motive for the trial. It was a political thing. Now verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now notice what Caiaphas says here in this conversation. He's predicting that they need to sacrifice one for the many in order to save the nation, to save the political element. But did you also notice as you heard that, as you read that, you see what God is doing? Caiaphas is actually prophesying the truth. He just doesn't know what truth he's prophesying. You see that? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nations. But Caiaphas said, who was high priest that year, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That right there, that's the gospel. Caiaphas didn't realize it. He was preaching the gospel, yet he was following evil. You see how God works here? You see God's hand at work here? Even as Caiaphas, who is, who is following and actually leading evil, is actually speaking the truth of the gospel, whether he realizes it or not. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> God's at work. Verse 51. And, and John helps us see this. He, he, just, he actually explains why what Caiaphas says is, is the gospel. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. See, even John tells us in the following verses, 
Caiaphas is speaking what God wants to be done. He just doesn't realize. You see how God works even amongst the evil? God doesn't cause the evil, but boy, He is still in control of it. And the O's and the evil don't realize it. You see that? That's an amazing thing. And so as, as those who respond to Jesus, they're responding to His signs and wonders. This is actually what we're seeing here in Matthew 26 and, and John chapter 11. These final days of Jesus as the religious leaders are gathering to plot. They're actually responding they're responding to everything that Jesus has been doing, but the, the last big event that really irks them is the fact that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus just keeps walking around talking to folks. Uh, everybody knew he was dead, but you couldn't deny that he was alive because he was sitting around and having dinner with folks and talking with folks. And, and, his, and even Lazarus had a reputation at that moment of here is the one that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, how do you fight against that? (laughs) And the religious leaders were feeling threatened. They had no other choice but to meet in secret, to go against what was clearly evident for all to see. These signs and these wonders. These elders, let's think about what's actually happening. These elders, in their misguided actions, thought they were doing the right thing, but in truth, they were rejecting heaven. And they were plotting against heaven. Because if you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, verses 24 through 25, Matthew reminds us that Jesus does many signs and wonders as He points to heaven. That's what the signs and the wonders are. Jesus is bringing a little bit of heaven with Him as He heals people, as He raises them from the dead. That's a hint of what heaven is. He brings heaven with Him. And so when you're plotting against the signs and the wonders that Jesus is undertaking here, what you're doing is you're plotting against heaven itself. Ponder that. Now, we're not, talk, we're not talking about the, the snake oil salesmen and the charlatans who actually put a, perform miracles. That's obvious when it's a fake. Okay, we're talking about Jesus here, who is the true Son of God, who is God Himself, doing real signs and wonders, raising people from the dead, healing people. That's a sign of heaven. And when you plot against that, when you plot against Jesus Christ Himself, you are evil plotting against heaven. And that's what these religious leaders were doing. Now, How do we understand the purpose and the outcome of these secret meetings here? I mean, because evil is clearly meeting in secret. There are evil things happening right now, folks, behind the scenes that we all are actually blessed not to see. Not just in our political system, not just in our society that we're all concerned about. There are clearly things happening in secret that we should be concerned about. But ultimately what all this is, there is a spiritual warfare happening all the time. We don't see it. And evil actually operates in secret. So how do we understand the purpose and the outcome of these secret meetings? How do we understand what these enemies of God are doing. Let's look back here at Matthew 26, verse 4. The plot to arrest and kill Jesus. These these people who are meeting, these high religious leaders, 
Verse 4, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. The King James says they were seeking to arrest him subtly. They wanted to do things in secret. Why? Why is this? These evildoers, these, these evil leaders, they do not value the truth of the kingdom of heaven. But they do not drag Jesus to his death. We have to understand here that these religious leaders that the powers of evil themselves, they are not forcing Jesus to do anything he is not willingly doing. They are not dragging him to his death. Jesus instead is led by God the Father. He's going willingly and humbly as God directs what must happen. But they plot to arrest and to kill him in secret. Now, the intentional secrecy here, it was practiced for evil ends, but... I think that we can see God's hand even in these evil intents, don't you? You see what's happening? Remember the words of Jesus in verse 2. What does Jesus say? You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But drop down to verse 5. If you make notes in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle what Jesus says there in verse 2, but then circle and notice what the chief priest says in verse 5. Jesus says that in two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up on the, uh, in the Passover. Verse 5, but these religious leaders said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So even here verses, between verses 2 and verses 5, we see a contrast of purposes. Jesus says, here's what's going to happen in two days. On the Passover, I will be delivered up and crucified. Yet the religious leader says, we don't want that to happen on the Passover. Why? Because Jerusalem was full of, uh, of pilgrims that week. The week of Passover was a week that it is estimated that over 2 million people were in Jerusalem this particular week to worship and to celebrate Passover. Now, why is this a problem? The religious leaders didn't want any kind of, of, of upheaval during the festival. The Passover feast was at hand. They didn't want any trouble. So they were secretly plotting and planning for this not to be made public because if it had been made public, what would have occurred? Riots. Upheaval. How do we know this? Well, one, they say it. Number two, when we look at the history here, Roman legions were always present in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. We know that the Roman authorities purposefully sent military personnel to Jerusalem to keep the peace during festivals like the Passover because it was common for riots to happen during the festo- during the festivals. When you've got that many people in a city and you've got a lot of political tension and religious tension, something's going to happen. <laughs> and the, so the Roman authorities always had legions of Roman soldiers present to keep the peace because we know that nearly 2 million people or more were gathered in Jerusalem that week. And think about what happens during the Passover feast. If you think about the Passover, there's always a sacrificial lamb and you have a gathering of family and together around to celebrate Passover and have the Passover meal. With 2 million people in Jerusalem, you're going to sacrifice 250,000 lambs that week. That's a lot of meat. It's also a lot of blood. It was not uncommon during that Passover week that blood poured through the streets and into the rivers. Just imagine the smell of blood and the meat that's being consumed during that week. 
Pilate, the governor, was also present there. That's why Pilate was in town. He wasn't there just as a fluke. Pilate was there on purpose to help keep the peace because they knew that riots would occur. Riots were known to break out. We know that. Look here in verse 5 of Matthew 26. Here's why. They said they didn't want to arrest Jesus in public, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. We also know that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 4, when Pilate washes his hands of Jesus, why does he say, Matthew tells us he washed his hands rather than a riot occur. He understood the tension. He understood. So what are we seeing here? Jesus says that the crucifixion will happen on the Passover. The religious folks and the political folks says, no, we want to keep the peace during the Passover. So you see a contrast of, of, of events here. God's timing is not the timing of evil. Let's just make that clear. These evil people were plotting against the purposes of salvation itself. Jesus was crucified at the start of the Passover festival on Passover day. He was crucified exactly as God said it would happen despite the plans of the evildoers. God restrains these... One commentary that I read on this said they called these people the evil dogs. (laughs) God restrains the ferocity of the evil dogs for His timing. He does it in His purposes, not theirs. Because had these religious leaders had their way, They would have secretly taken care of Jesus, but they would have held him for eight days or more because the Passover festival was eight days long. Passover began on the first day of the festival and there would be celebrations for eight days following. And if it was up to them, it would have happened in secret probably after the festival. But you see how God's hand works here? He took every step exactly the way he wanted it to occur. You see that? Now, we can get into it a little bit deeper about what happens there, but that'll come in another sermon. Exactly what changed here in their plans. Now, let's compare how these religious leaders value Jesus against a genuine witness. You see that? Some valued Jesus just as a problem, as a troublemaker. He was just somebody to get rid of. Now, let's take a look here at a genuine witness. Look here at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. You see a stark contrast here? (laughs) I love how Matthew puts these narratives together. He's doing this on purpose. I think he's showing us through chapter 26, Jesus will be delivered up to be crucified. The enemies of the kingdom, the enemies of salvation itself, will plot to stop it. Yet in the midst of all this, in verses 6 and 7, we see a genuine adoration of the Lamb. Now, what's happening here at verse 6? By the time we get to verse 6, I think Matthew here, this is actually a flashback in his narrative. He's going back in time to the Saturday or so before Jesus comes into Jerusalem. See, because the verses 1 through 5, this is as Jesus is already in Jerusalem. It's in the middle of the week. Now, at verse 6, you could, if you want to take a note there, it's like a flashback scene in a movie. Flashback in the story. This passage shows that Jesus, it's here to give a context 
against the religious leaders. This scene in Bethany would have occurred the day before Jesus enters Jerusalem. It would have occurred that day. We see, and we, if you look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, uh, and actually in verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. That's how we know what timeline this was. It was a week before the Passover. So it would have been the day or so before he comes into Jerusalem. We see in this encounter, look at this meal. It's at the home of someone called Simon the leper. We don't have any other indication of who that was. But I think clearly when you read the name there, the house of Simon the leper, Simon, at least at one point, had leprosy. Now, no one would have been in his house for a meal if he still had leprosy. That would not have happened. So I think we could very easily infer here that Jesus perhaps healed Simon of leprosy at one time. And so they're gathering here in Bethany, which would have been kind of a neighborhood to Jerusalem. It would have been just outside of the city. And he was gathered as Simon invites people to his home to give Jesus a celebration and a welcome. Now look here. To some in this meeting, as, as they're sitting there having their meal, this one woman, she breaks open an expensive bottle of ointment. Very expensive. A year's wages worth and anoints Jesus, pouring it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, other passages of scripture, other gospel narratives indicate that this woman comes and anoints his feet. And some think that maybe these were two different instances, but I say it's the same one for this reason. If she's pouring this much ointment over his head, where does it go? It's going all over his body and it goes all the way down to his feet. That's you got to, this is not just a few drops of oil. The, he, she's pouring this expensive ointment over the body of her Savior. Not just a few drops. That's when she adores him so much. She loves him so much. She values her Lord so much. She, ex, she gives so much expense to loving him and showing her affection for him. She covers his whole body, pouring it all over him to the point he comes all the way down to his feet anointing his body for burial. That's what Jesus says happens. She loved him. And what does Jesus say about this woman? Because the response of his own disciples, isn't this the typical response of a man to what a woman does? What is she doing? That's a waste. Amen. You see what we do, guys? How many many husbands are guilty? Uh, Only one. (laughs) None of the other men are wanting to admit it. (laughs) Amen. We do this. The men in the room, they look at her in verse 8, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why the waste? For this could have been sold for a larger sum and given to the poor. Now, I'm going to try to come to the defense of the men here, but they still were wrong. They had just listened to Jesus teach in the Olivet Discourse about giving to the poor. Now, Jesus, we just want to do what you said. Why is she wasting all this ointment on you? (laughs) They were wrong. Verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. See, he appreciated it. He received her act of worship. He received her love and her devotion for him. And said, this is appropriate because of what he says here in verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
You know, he had just, he had just prophesied and prepared his disciples in verse two that the Passover was coming and the Son of Man would be delivered up to be crucified. And he had predicted often throughout his teaching to the disciples that his end would be crucifixion. And this woman that we know is Mary, because that's what uh, Luke's or John's gospel tells us, she understood what he was teaching. She understood the weight of the death that was coming. She understood, Jesus, you are leaving us. And she wanted to love him. And she wanted to show her affection for him. That's an act of worship. Now that's how you value Jesus. Do we come into God's house every Sunday? And if you come on Wednesdays, do we come just because it is the routine of our our culture and our, our community? Or do we come here with a sincere attitude of worship and praise of our Savior who died? We have a cross as a symbol of our faith. To us, it's just a symbol. But the truth of that symbol is torture and suffering and torment. This woman understood, this Mary we know, she understood what her Savior was going to go through. She had come, become so close to him through her family and watched all of his miracles. He had raised her brother from the grave. She loved him. And Jesus welcomed that. But notice here in verses 8 through 9, these disciples respond to Jesus very much the way that these evil religious leaders were responding. They were indignant. Now we know here in in John chapter 12, in John's account, John tells us, but Judas Iscariot said he used to, uh, to that this was wrong. It was Judas who mentions this, who actually raises a doubt as to why this woman is doing this. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Why is she doing this? We could take that money and give it to the poor. But at the same time, in Matthew's gospel, he, he, he clumps all the disciples in on this, not just Judas. Because think about this. When, when evil comes, evil can be distorting and actually be attractive. And I think the words and the attitude of Judas probably poisoned the minds of the disciples in the room. And they went right along with him. But now why does, G, why does Judas argue that we can give the money to the poor. Well, Judas, we know in John's gospel, Judas, he was in charge of the money bag. And Judah, and John's gospel, John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, chapter, I mean, verse 6 even tells us he used to help himself to the money bag. <laughs> so embezzlement of church funds is nothing new. It's been around. Um, but now a little bit deeper here, and we're going to, we're actually going to talk about Judas here next week. Church tradition, this is church tradition. It's not biblical, and, and there are some, some historical records hinting at this. Church tradition hints that Judas may have had a family that he had to take care of. And so he would take money out of the money bag and go and waste it. Actually, he would waste it. He would waste it on his family. That's, that's one thing in church history that says. That may be one of his motives. He had a wife at home and children at home who demanded things of him, and he took money out and gave it to them. Probably sport it on himself too. But we see here that a stark contrast. We have those who respond to Jesus pragmatically. We have this one woman who responds to Jesus emotionally and worthily. 
You see the difference? How, how do we value Jesus? I think when we look at this text, all of us can glean from this, these scenes here of the final days of Jesus that there were some who responded to Jesus as merely just, okay, he's just a popular teacher. Or he's, he's a troublemaker that we have to take care of because he's stirring up the political balance. And then we have those who understand the greater spiritual significance of what Jesus is doing and these final days of Jesus, how important they are to the eternal life granted to his children. God's children are guaranteed an eternal life through the blood of Christ. The only way that we could ever hope to have eternal life through Christ is that Jesus had to die and rise from the grave. And Jesus is guiding us through here. As we read Matthew's gospel, I think we see Jesus guiding us through the steps to salvation, what was necessary. He had to die for us. And some got it and some didn't. Those who got it responded to Jesus with humility and adoration. Those who didn't get it respond to Jesus, well, oh well, it's just what it is. You see the difference, the contrast? How do we value Jesus in these next weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday? Over the next three weeks, my challenge to us all is this. As we go through God's Word, and even today, let this be the foundation for your meditation and your prayer for the next three weeks. Do I worship Jesus and do I adore Jesus? Do I fully grasp and understand the weight of His sacrifice for me? Or is just, are we just going through the motions of the busyness of the season? And let's just get through the Easter service and get through the Easter gatherings and let's just move on because i got too much work to do. You see where we're headed here? How do we approach the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus? I think as we prepare our spirits for celebration and as we prepare to worship on Resurrection Sunday, let's all ponder how valuable Jesus truly is, truly is. Remember the, the, the religious leaders, these evildoers, they were practicing illusion. But Mary, who anoints Jesus from head to toe... She wasn't practicing illusion. She was seeing the truth, and that truth overwhelmed her. She knew it was beyond her, and she responded with worship. How do we view Jesus? Let's ponder how we, we, we view the suffering and the sacrifice of our Lord, His suffering and His sacrifice for us because of our sin. Let's ponder that. Will you do that? Will you take some time over the next three weeks and regularly pray and meditate over the Scriptures? Ponder your own sin in light of Christ's holiness and His suffering. Are we indignant the way that these disciples were indignant? Are we indignant because someone around us is too emotional in their worship about Jesus? Are we indignant? You know what that word means. <laughs> You're annoyed. <laughs> You're angrily annoyed, right? Are we annoyed because someone is emotional about Jesus? Perhaps we feign a piety. Perhaps we feign a religious attitude because we're too humble or we're too poor. Oh, look at me. Yet 
we are too reserved to worship Jesus. Can we be too extravagant in our devotion to the Lord? I don't think we can be too extravagant. <laughs> now, we can, we can act in ways that pagans do and not worship Jesus at all. <laughs> but is our, I mean, do we genuinely love and adore our Savior? That's the question. Jesus pinpoints here who values him most in verses 10 through 13. He reminds these disciples who were indignant. Okay, if your argument is we have to give this money to the poor, you're always going to have poor people with you. You're going to have, you're always going to have ministry opportunities to share the gospel with those who need it. But I'm not going to be here much longer. Oh, this is much more important. You see that? This woman, Mary, is the true witness in the midst of false witnesses. This, when we read verses 1 through 13, Matthew is showing us there is what a genuine witness and a genuine follower of Jesus Christ is in contrast to not only the religious leaders who are not, but also Judas and the disciples who in that moment were not. Why do we do this? Judas Iscariot and these disciples, they guard their piety. But Mary, she values Jesus beyond all. She understands he's the Messiah. And the very, the very term Messiah that we also call Christ means the anointed one. She may not have, I mean, she could have consciously understood it, but perhaps not. I don't know. But we see here in the narrative that God in his hand of direction of all things, even here in this, he shows that Jesus is the anointed one who is worthy of sacrifice for us. Notice that in contrast to those who plotted against this. Are you, are you against salvation? Or are you so overwhelmed with it? If you are so overwhelmed with the reality of a saved experience, a saved state before God? Are you so overwhelmed with your salvation that you have no other response but to prostrate yourself in front of the Lord and worship Him? Or are we so pious and cold that we just ignore the weight of salvation? Father God, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I pray, dear God, that through what you have spoken to us today through Matthew's gospel, that you would weigh upon each and every one of us in this room and those who are hearing this sermon, who have heard your word read. Dear God, I pray that you would search every one of our hearts. Are we, dear God, more like the disciples and these religious leaders and how we think about Christ and everything that He stands for and the salvation that He, that He makes possible? How do we respond to this, Father? Are we just cold-hearted and plotting against? Or do we break down in emotional truth and are overwhelmed with the eternal nature of this? God, as we prepare to worship and to celebrate here in a few weeks, the most significant point of the Christian faith, 
that Jesus Christ died but rose from the grave. Lord, I pray that every one of us would become so overwhelmed with the truth of your glory that we would respond to Jesus the way that Mary does. Lord, I pray that you would soften us, that you would open our hearts to the truth, that you would chisel away the stone-cold nature of our hearts and warm us with your Spirit. Guide us each and every day, Father, we pray. And as we close our worship here, Father, there are those who may be hearing this sermon, may be hearing these words, and they're saying, and they realize that their hearts are hard and their hearts are cold. I pray, God, that your Spirit would soften that coldness and that your Spirit would cause those who may not honor and worship your Son to break down and worship Him as He deserves to be worshiped. Change our hearts, Lord. Change the coldness of our heart to be made new in Christ. Let this time be for your glory, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.